Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Greetings, welcome in. It is what the man said, Downtown, the podcast. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell from our Zone Radio studios. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Where are we? Episode number 255. Well, how about that? Uh, Coming up on the show this week, we'll talk with a rock and roll Hall of Famer and a talented writer who's got a brand new book out looking back on the 1966 baseball season in the context of what was going on in America at the time as well. Dave Davies in just a moment. Author David Krell later on in the program discussing his book, Do You Believe in Magic? Well, first, though, what a thrill this was to talk with the legendary Dave Davies of the Kinks, a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's got a lot of things cooking right now, including a recently released autobiography called Living on a Thin Line. He's got a a companion CD of some of his solo work, also titled Living on a Thin Line. And he's helped put together with the other members of the band a new collection of Kinks music called The Journey Part One, and it's a a double album, very cleverly organized as well. And we talked with Dave about that, uh, his origins, and much more. Dave Davies of the Kinks here on Downtown. Rich, how are you? I'm wonderful, Dave. How are you? Okay. All right, I'm doing good. Glad to hear it. Well, I I just finished reading the book last night, and it was was so good, and I, I was struck by something you wrote in the preface, you talked about the power of kindness and compassion. Is that is that something you've known all along, or did it did it take a while to get to that realization? I think it it, it took a while, but I I always remember that um, when I was very young, that my mother always said to me that. Um, Whatever you do, you always have a choice. And um, I would like you to make a choice to help people and to be kind. Although her life was a very, <laughs> it was very rough and rugged and they were like a basic hard work and working class London family. And they knew how to work hard. So I think there's something else that both Ray and I learned from our parents was hard work and um, and uh, not to take disappointment, take it on the chin, move on. You know. <laughs> Things always go wrong. <laughs> you, had, uh, you had some terrific influences. I, we've talked to so many musicians who were influenced by Lonnie Donegan, and people here in the States know him for maybe Rock Island Line or Does Your Chewing Gum Lose the Flavor, but but what he did to really kick off the skiffle movement was huge. But he, Lonnie, really kicked off R&B, as, as it was called then, in, in London, England. He, he played banjo for, we used to have, like, Bands have played like Dixieland before all the rock stuff. And I liked it. And I liked the banjo because my dad played banjo. 
And when Lonnie, Lonnie came along, Lonnie Donegan came along, it was very exciting, the skiffle movement. It was very exciting. And I remember Lonnie covered a song by one of my favourite composers or blues players, um, Led Belly. Led mm. Belly is, was a famous blues exponent. Quite fabulous. And I modeled a lot of my playing on on um, Led Belly and, uh, and Lonnie introduced a lot of folk, American folk, black blues into our culture in England. So it's quite a, a revolutionary in a way. Although he goes unsung. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Dave Davies here on Downtown. One of the most poignant parts of your book, and I, I knew some of the story, but uh, the story of your sister Renee, uh, I know the song uh, Come Dancing was an homage to her and to Frank, but that was such a powerful story. Well, yeah, it's life, isn't it? Life mm. can get you one way or the other. Mm. And, uh, it was a very, very um, interesting period in, in both Ray's life and my life. Because she was always had heart problems. And, like, she lived in Canada for a while where we heard a lot of American music. And um, she came home... And uh, she was not doing too good. And she wanted to buy Ray a guitar. And um, oh, to cut a long story short, long emotional story short, she one night she went out dancing. And she loved to dance. And um, she died on the dance floor in London's... I think at the Stratton, I, was just, I can't remember the actual venue, but it was in, in London, like one of the, the famous ballrooms. And um, she died the night before Ray got his guitar, really. And like, you know, as if it wasn't bad for me, imagine what it must have been like for Ray. Oh, it's, a, it's such a story. You also write uh, about... The first big hit, You Really Got Me. And, well, you guys had to fight to make sure you got the sound you wanted. You didn't want it overproduced. You wanted that gritty sound that really established what kinks were all about. Yeah, I mean, it could easily have never been released that record. Um, we were working, we, you know, we were just so lucky to get in the studio, really. Mm. And... Um, uh, managed to got this producer that helped us, and we didn't like it. And we thought, well, we, got, we need to re-record it. And Ray was very adamant as well. And so we needed £200 to re-record it. And luckily, one of our managers, Robert, gave us the money to go and re-record it. And this time we, record, we re-recorded it without all the the echo and the flash at the studio and the basic gritty and that's how we wanted it. That's how we started. So it was a gamble that paid off. 
Really? Well, it certainly did. Uh, a lot of that great music chronicled in The Journey Part 1. I love the way that you guys have organized the album, with each side having a, a really specific theme. Well, yeah, we thought we liked to try and do something a little bit different <clears throat> and try and make color it, color it differently. And a lot of our own personal input into the song. So that was a lot of fun, yeah. That's really good. I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> and the book is terrific. You've got a, a new CD of your own music as well. Some some new music for us to hear, including a song that uh, you co-wrote with the great Jerry Goffin. Oh, yeah, that was... When I lived in LA all those years ago, the early 90s, I met Jerry and my talented guy, Really talented guy, and we're sitting in a coffee shop on the Sunset Strip on Hollywood, Hollywood, and uh, we're talking about uh, what we liked and what we didn't like, and 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 he said, "I've always wanted to write a, a, a song for Bob Dylan," and. Uh, and uh, man, I think he writes his own songs. <laughs> but anyway, he was adamant about this. And the first thing he wrote on the napkin, we were sitting at the coffee, he wrote it all on napkin in the restaurant. And it was, um, he always liked the song done a day called Blowing in the Wind. And he wrote down napkin. The wind ain't blowing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, I thought that was funny and humorous, you know. And so we, we built up a song based on that, and he wanted, wanted to call it 21st Century. And it got lost. The tape it was only a cassette, like an old-fashioned cassette tape. <laughs> and we were lucky. We found it in a, in a, a lock-up in um, Hollywood. So, and we thought we've got to try and get this out. You know, it's it's a piece of history yeah. apart from anything else. And it sounds pretty good. It sure does. Well, it's great to have it out there. Also, uh, the journey part one from the Kinks, uh, the wonderful book, living on a thin line. Uh, it's been. It's been quite a road from Muswell Hill, and it's great to read it in your words, Dave. I, I love the book, love the new music, and so grateful that you spent some time with us today. Thank you so much, and we wish Thank you, you continued you. success, good health. Good health, man. That was Dave Davies of the Kinks with us on Downtown. A word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and when we return, we'll take you back to 1966, a memorable year in America and in Major League Baseball, author David Krell, up next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
It's the Kinks from 1966, which was uh, quite a year in music, in America, and in baseball. And all of that chronicled in a new book by David Krell entitled, Do You Believe in Magic? And uh, Bruce Pratt and I had a chance to talk with David about it recently on Downtown. Well, let me just say, you've done it again, my friend. Another absolutely wonderful book at uh, baseball and what was happening in the country in this important year. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So, what drew you? You, you had the great success with 1962 and a, and a truly watershed year. Why of all those other years, why 66? Well, I think we had talked about this the last time when you had me as a guest to talk about 1962. It hadn't been done. I couldn't find any books about 1966 except for one book about the World Series called Black and Blue. And I thought there must be some other things going on that year in baseball, not to mention the country at large. And when I did a little digging, I found Caesar's Palace debuted. I found some stories about Batman that I didn't know before. And there was just an abundance. And the embarrassment really came from, okay, big shot, you have all these uh, topics. Now, how are you going to string them together? And what are you going to leave out? Because as we talked about before, your darlings will be thrown overboard. If I if I wrote the book I wanted to write, it would have been 700 pages. One of the things that I think you did tremendously well is distill this down into very readable and very understandable prose without sacrificing the importance of anything. And that's not easy to do. I mean, I've read a lot yeah. of books that are just so wordy and verbose that you don't you don't get that when when you when you did that you also managed to do it without making it sound like bullets so when you sat down to do this did you do a lot of outlining or because i know i never do did you do a lot of outlining and organization that way i, I did a, a lot of outlining uh rich but i and bruce but i also know that i'm going to be sitting before you before others who are discerning and don't want to have their time wasted and don't want to see in a book what you can find on Wikipedia. So I always had that in my mind. What are you going to talk about? Are you going to talk about Gene Autry, uh, uh, who owned the Angels? Or are you going to talk about Jack Dutton, the city councilman who actually got the facility to be approved, the 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 uh, the ballpark? And and why did he get it approved? And what was it about him that that drove him? What was the ambition? What did he want? Well, he wanted civic service, and I wanted to tell that story. And I wanted to tell the other stories, that these unsung heroes. Why was 1966 such a groundbreaking year? And I, there was a lot of outlining, but you have to leave yourself open for new avenues because you. I, I think it was Patton who said, when you go into war, a battle plan is great until somebody shoots at you. Yeah, right. Um, one of the, uh, the things I, I thought was really interesting about 1966, the Dodgers and the Yankees are starting and go into a period of decline and they've been yes. big 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 time baltimore right. was not the place you that people i think expected the next world series champion to come from because they had some but they had some of the most colorful people and players in in, in that period of time going okay. up to the great year where they had the 420 game winners and in that is there something did you find something com particularly compelling in the fact that it was the orioles i not per se, but I did not realize until I was about halfway through, these teams are transplants. The Dodgers came from Brooklyn, and the Orioles came from St. Louis in the early 50s. They were once the Browns. Right. 
So it was very new still in 1966 to have a major league team in these cities. And you, um, one of the, the things I think was also interesting is the way that what is changing socially in America at the time, and especially when, when you about all the music you talked about in the different TV shows yeah. and things. You got Johnny Carson starts Andy Griffith. You got right. Batman. You've got you've got um, sh shows dedicated to uh, like like I Spy and Man from Uncle and those kinds of right. things coming along in that that era. Um, sports, baseball is still the number one sport then. Um, and, and it right. has to compete with all these, these other things. Why do you think baseball stayed so compelling in the, in the late 60s? I think you still had parents and grandparents who were immigrants who wanted to grasp the American dream. And what better way than to go to the ballpark? That's why Italian-Americans called Babe Ruth the Bambino. It, you know, it's Italian for, for Babe. And it was just ingrained. Television hadn't taken hold for sports yet. Uh, football was certainly on the rise. And then by the time you get to the 80s and 90s, basketball and football pretty much took over. Uh, but baseball is still the American sport. We're talking with David Krell about his new book, Do You Believe in Magic? Well, 1962 was, of course, uh, John Glenn's first orbital flight on Friendship 7. I, I would say... Other than 1969 and, and the moon landing, 1966 was perhaps as important a year for the space program as any other year in the decade. Oh, no doubt. They had five successful missions, and, and someday someone will write a book about the Gemini Project. It, it gets overlooked. We had the right stuff with Project Mercury, and everybody knows about Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, first man to land on the moon in Apollo 11. But sandwiched in between are these two-man trips. And gosh, that, that was so imperative for us to get to the moon. Every trip got us more information, got us closer to the point where we could send up three-man missions and have one land on the moon. One of the, the, the things that changed in that time, too, is Marvin Miller comes into the picture in baseball. And Koufax and Drysdale are the first uh, big stars to say, well, you don't pay me, I'm not going to play. Right. You've got still the the Kurt flood thing going on and like right how much how much do you think that Marvin Miller's getting that job changed all the professional sports over time a, a great deal of change because of Marvin Miller but at the time and I wrote about this he wasn't universally accepted by the players especially veterans because you have a veteran ball player for 10, 12 years, he says, well, I have a great relationship with the owner. You're going to come in, you're going to act like a crybaby, and you're going to spoil it, and I need to put food on the table. But what Marvin Miller did was he went on a listening tour. He went and listened to the ball players. What's your quality of life? What happens when you're on a nine-game road trip? Do you come back home and play that night? Things like that are more important than money sometimes because it it really affects the longevity of the player. Koufax and Drysdale was that holdout was separate from Miller. You know, it happened roughly the same time as Miller got the got the job as the union chief. But Koufax and Drysdale, uh, the holdout I had heard of, I didn't realize that it lasted for a month. One of the other big factors in baseball in the 1960s was. 
uh, the movement of franchises, uh, whether it was expansion in 62 or as happened in 1966, the arrival of the Braves from Milwaukee to Atlanta. And, and it, it seems clear that uh, what we think of and what for many years was called the New South, uh, a big part of that was the success of this baseball team moving to Atlanta. And wouldn't you know that the Hawks and the Falcons come about around the same time, and that solidifies Atlanta as a major metropolis. Mm -hmm. Of course, Wisconsinites were heartbroken when the Braves left, but uh, the lawsuit happened in, to no avail. But four years later, they got a team when the Seattle Pilots busted after one season in Washington State, and they moved to uh, to Wisconsin and became the Brewers. When you look at um, uh, baseball as, as a TV entity in the 1960s versus today, um, do you think it was more in tune with the times, that the announcers were more in tune with the times? Well, it was, it was more romantic. It was more... Um, you know, as, as Brad Pitt says, who says you can't be romantic about baseball? Uh, there was something very cool about kids bringing a transistor radio to school and listening on the way home and uh, running home, hoping he'll catch the last two innings of the game. Now it's all prime time. Kids can't stay up that late. Uh, adults can't stay up that late in many <laughs> cases to watch the World Series. And I think we've lost a lot of that. Of that. But also, don't forget, Bruce and Rich, there were no playoffs then. Right. You didn't have this extended postseason that we have now, which it, it just goes on and it's interminable. So you really had the top two teams battling it out. And I wasn't aware. I, mean, I was just a young kid at the time, but was certainly following baseball. But uh, Frank Robinson, he took that trade from Cincinnati pretty personally, didn't he? Well, the, the Cincinnati executive called him over the hill in not so many <laughs> words. And wouldn't you know, Frank Robinson wins the Triple Crown in Baltimore. So he proved that age is, is just a number, and he's as much an icon to Cincinnati baseball fans as he is to Baltimore fans. Yeah, that he was that executive was the Dan Duquette of his era, <laughs> saying that Roger Clemens was a pitcher of diminishing skills. Um, another or, or the guy from Decca Records who told the Beatles uh, <laughs> guitar groups are on the way out. Yeah, guitar groups are on the way out, absolutely. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book, and, and I knew about it, but I had never really studied it, and I did, is Ted Williams' remarkable speech at Cooperstown. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. did I can't think of any speech by a sports figure of his magnitude that could have had more of an impact on on his game and his Hall of Fame. Well, there were people in entertainment who made great strides. Jack Benny is a favorite of mine, and certainly he gave Eddie Rochester Anderson all the great lines in the show. Because Jack Benny said, as long as somebody laughs, it doesn't matter whether I get the line or Rochester gets the line. And Rochester often often bested him. But with, with Ted Williams using not only his celebrity, but his day. This was his induction day at the Hall of Fame. This wasn't some interview he did for the Boston Globe. He shone the spotlight on the Negro Leaguers who just didn't have the opportunity to play. And Ted Williams and people like him said, look, the guy can play ball. He shouldn't be punished because he wasn't allowed to be in the major leagues. Josh Gibson should be here. Satchel Paige should be here. And there are a few dozen others uh, that he probably didn't have time to name in his speech. But had he not done that, I wonder how much longer it would have taken. It, take, it took until 1971 until Paige 
Satchel Page got uh, inducted. And even then, the commissioner of baseball said, no, it'll be a, an exhibit until he succumbed and Satchel Page is right up there with everyone else. A lot of music in that period of time. Um, yeah. We get the freeform FM radio comes into into being, in the, in the, especially in, in greater New York, where I was listening at the time, where you'd hear Take 5, one moment, a Beatles tune the next, a Dylan tune the next, and then some wild band from the coast. When right. there was that much out there, there was so much stimuli going on. Do you think that had a lot to do with the energy of the era? From what I'm told, yes. I was born in 67, so when I listen to these songs, it's pretty much on, on the oldies channel. But you had Motown, folk, hard rock, the surfing sound, or some people call it the California sound. Um, classical music, did, wasn't there a, a number one hit, Love is Blue? Yep. Uh, which is sort of classical. So there, there's all there are just a, a lot of moving parts in the music arena. It must have been a great time to grow up in. I was 15 then, and it was a pretty good year, as I remember. Uh, <laughs> when you talk about television, too, as you mentioned in the book, uh, The Spies, whether it was uh, most of them spinning off the success at the movies of, of the James Bond franchise, but but they did such an interesting job of talking about uh, other things that were happening in America and the world. You mentioned the man from UNCLE, the cooperation behind the scenes of the United States and the Soviet Union with uh, Napoleon yeah. Solo and Ilya Kuryakin working together. Um, the, the parody of the spy genre with Get Smart and others. And then uh, the, the wonderful work, and I was so happy to see you write about uh, Barbara Bain and the tremendous job she oh. did on Mission Impossible and the unique way they found to light her. Barbara is an angel. She gave me so much time, so much information, so much background about Mission Impossible, remembered things like they happened yesterday, and pointed to the fact of, yeah, it's the crew. It's not just the actors. The crew decides how to light, the sound, everything. So when you see a movie, when you see a, uh, a, a TV show, believe me, it's uh, the lighting and the sound guys who really deserve uh, an unsung hero's credit. Uh, she was tremendous. And what a breakthrough for a woman to have that role where she's on an even keel with mm. the rest of the team. Absolutely. So when you look at baseball, David, uh, did 1966, other than you know, the end of a great career with Sandy Koufax, did it mark a turning point in baseball history? Well, sure, because when Sandy Koufax leaves, what happens? Uh, all the GMs across the National League are crying, same way they were crying during the holdout, because if there's no Sandy Koufax visiting your, your city, that means a lot less people in the stands. Uh, it wasn't just the Dodgers who were, who were crying about that. Uh, it was a turning point. The Dodgers didn't get back to the series until 74. They got swept by Baltimore uh, in 66. And Drysdale had, I think, three more years. I believe he retired after 69, after which he made a, an iconic guest appearance on the Brady Bunch, <laughs> where he showed Brady his secret slider, one of my favorite episodes of all time. Uh, and as you said, the Yankees were in quite a downturn. After the 64 World Series, they didn't get back until 76. So New York was suffering in the American League. and the National League, of course, once Tom Seaver came in and Gil Hodges became the manager. The Mets had some really good fortunes. 
Yeah, yeah, the, and the Mets are an interesting thing too because there, there's, a, you know, we're talking expansion teams that have been relocated, yeah. venerated, long-established teams falling off. It, it had yeah. to expand the interest in baseball as well. Certainly, obviously, Atlanta getting a franchise did. I asked my students the other day what, what state they, what team they thought broadcast into the most states in my hockey lit class. And they were all suggesting New York or Chicago. Somebody said, right. well, how about Atlanta? Because what what Southern states also have baseball teams? And they're like, ooh, only Florida. You know, it, it, I, that really opened up a lot. I took a couple of classes with Dr. Douglas Gomery at the University of Maryland in media. I was a media studies major. And he talked about how the most popular baseball team in Fargo, North Dakota, it's Fargo, North Dakota, right? Not South yes, Dakota. North Dakota. Uh, well, actually, anywhere from Seattle to Milwaukee and Minneapolis, that whole area, the most popular team was the Braves because they had the Superstation. Right. That's the only baseball they saw except for maybe college baseball. So TBS, the Superstation, because of Ted Turner, was able to build a following in states that were a thousand miles away. Another big thing happened then, the Miranda decision. And I'd yeah. argue that that's been probably as important in, in law as almost anything that follows right after that until maybe Title IX. Um, right. Everybody seems to know, they've heard it said on TV, but how many people really know the story behind the Miranda decision? Right. And I just saw a comment on YouTube that uh, the end of, of the Shawshank Redemption, which I believe happens in 66, there's a, a cop reading the prison guard his rights off a card. And that's because they didn't know it by heart then. Mm. They had to recite it word for word. And sure, by the time you're 10 years old and you've seen any cop show, yeah. you can pretty much recite the Miranda warnings. But I felt it incumbent upon me. I was a lawyer. Uh, I graduated from Villanova Law School. I'm a University of Maryland graduate. And... I felt it incumbent upon me, given my legal background, to explore the Miranda case and talk about it. Well, and, and you, the care for, can also understand the labor negotiations and things in a different way from the layman. Um, sure. I gave, I gave, giving my copy of, of your book to my son, who's a, a, a lawyer, and um, I know he's going to enjoy a lot of that part of the book. And interesting, too, that I, okay. I, as a civics teacher for a long time, always talked about uh, two cases that happened within, a, I think, about a year of each other. And one was Gideon versus Wainwright, uh, with Clarence right. Earl Gideon uh, being convicted uh, down in Florida when he was told he could represent himself in court, even though I think he had only about an eighth grade education, got a new trial, was found not guilty. But Ernesto Miranda right. got himself a new trial, but, but then was found guilty <laughs> yeah, a second right. time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful book. It is really a remarkable uh, story of America. It's uh, yes, it's a baseball book. So more than that, and it really weaves together everything that was happening in this country in 1966. So, uh, David, congratulations on an, another terrific read. It's great to have you back with us, and well, we look forward to the next adventure you take us on. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much, David, and uh, let us know as soon as you got a new book. We'd love to talk to you again. Next year, next year, I have a book coming out about the cultural history of the Red Sox. Oh, so hello, hello. Yeah, you know. Touchdown. Well, <laughs> can't wait go. to have you. Awesome. Thank you, David. Bye now. Take care. David Krell talking about his book, Do You Believe in Magic? Baseball in America 
in the groundbreaking year of 1966. Our thanks to David. Thanks to Dave Davies of the Kinks and to you for joining us. Hope you'll be with us next week right here on Downtown.